Um, this is my last sermon for a while, and ironically, I drew the short straw, and I have to preach on Hosea, which might not mean much to some of you, um, to others of you, you you're, you're laughing already. Um, so it's kind of a weird one to go out on. Uh, it's a very raw book, and uh, I think Jarrell tried to let the youth group know, if you're worried about it being a little bit too much for your student, if they're in here, uh, I'm going to pray in a minute, and you can feel free um, to maybe go take them to the youth group or, or children's ministry, etc. And then, um, in all fairness, I also know this is going to hit this is going to hit buttons, deep emotional buttons with certain people based on life experience uh, or trauma, and, um, and it'll be raw. And I just want you to know that I, I know that, and I've been praying um, for the last couple days just that in the midst of that, that, that the message kind of uh, would be carried through in the book, the message that I think this book sits in the Old Testament to give us. Um, and that we would walk out of here with a better sense of our God. So um, please know that. But so we're going to pray, we're going to jump into Hosea, and then we're going to leave time at the end, and we're going to um, take communion today uh, as a church, as a spiritual community, and I'll explain that kind of as we get closer. So if you can, would you play, uh, pray with me, for me, and uh, then we'll jump in. Father. Um, this is a difficult book to wrestle with, but obviously one that you wanted there for a reason, that we might know a little bit more your emotions and your feelings uh, as you are our God and we are your people, yet we are prone to wander. And so convict us, encourage us, nurture us, give us a better picture of, of the mission that your son came, uh, came on to chase after us, to redeem us, to reconcile us, uh, because your love never fails. And so we give you glory this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to Hosea. It's the first of what's called the Twelve. It's not uh, chronologically the first, but it's the first in terms of maybe size of the minor prophets and possibly even message. And uh, we'll kind of jump in here a little bit, but, but it's 15 chapters. I'm not going to be able to read that much of the text. I'm going to try and give you a sense of it and then draw out the themes for us as we kind of go through it. But Hosea was unique in that he was the only prophet to the northern kingdom. Remember, there's the northern kingdom uh, and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom, in some sense, was, was punished first, taken into exile, and then eventually Judah Hosea is the only prophet to the northern kingdom that was born in the nor northern kingdom. And in some ways, this is his story, and, and he certainly sits into it a little bit more intimately. Um, so he also preached the longest or lived the longest, testified the longest of any of the prophets, uh, some almost a dozen kings, uh, while he kind of did his thing. And so you see a swatch of time go by as he's really trying to picture to the people of Israel the message that God would have them hear and that they would know uh, was coming from the Lord. It starts off in a real rowdy way, and we'll just read that part starting in chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Berai, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Johash, king of Israel. Verse 2, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, 
the Lord said to him, Go take yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. And so Hosea married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And in that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 6, Gomer then conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. And after she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Uh, Gomer had another son, and then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. By the way, this is not how Tamar and I named our kids. I don't know how you went about it. Like, in our house, it was, I would come up with a, a name, and she'd say no, and then she'd come up with a name, and I'd be like, no, nah, there was like an annoying girl in third grade that was named by that name. And, and it's like we were weeding out all the bad ones. This is something very different. It's like, you know, what about we call them this? Absolutely, because that speaks judgment <laughs> well enough, you know. Like, it, it's complete, complete reverse. Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or countered. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and will come out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Save your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved ones. So this last sentence is really interesting because the Israelites and and those from Judah uh, politically were were really at odds and didn't get along in any kind of way. Uh, Even in the time of Jesus when you had the whole area of Samaria and, and these two things just didn't jive, didn't get along. God is prophesying that they're going to come back together and they're going to have one leader. So you get a lot of those long-term prophecies. So here's what's going on. God says to Hosea um, something different than he did to all the other prophets. He doesn't give him a message. Here's, here's what you're to go say. He gives him an action item. He says, I want you to go find this woman and I want you to marry her. Now, there's a lot of different theories on who Gomer was, either just somebody... Uh, who was uh, very unfaithful, just out of, out of dysfunction or character or whatever it might be, uh, or a temple prostitute uh, serving the gods of Baal. And the gods of Baal, kind of in the northern kingdom, it was basically a fertility cult. Now, a fertility cult doesn't mean much to us today. We think fertility, sex, like people. Um, in an agrarian culture like that, fertility meant everything. It meant the plants. It meant uh, the animals. It meant that everything was going to flourish so that you could survive. So fertility was a really big deal in the ancient world. And a lot of the pagan gods, a lot of uh, the, the myths that we have of, of other, like even kind of more Norse myths, I mean, basically anywhere you go, there's a fertility aspect to it, right? Um, and 
So they're worshiping this god, Baal, or the many gods of Baal, and, and they're, they're kind of getting caught up in the fertility rites of that, which is basically saying, instead of going to God, that God is going to bless the land, that God is going to make things flourish, that God is going to somehow take care of us and bring us to the place we need to be. We're going to go to these fertility gods. And with the fertility gods, you had these, these temple prostitutes that would engage in certain rituals uh, to kind of enact out this, this pagan symbol and this pagan rite. And there's some, some scholars that believe that's who Gomer was. But she takes on, in this kind of drama that God is setting up, she takes on the picture of the northern kings. In other words, Hosea the prophet is himself um, picturing or playing or representing God. And Gomer, this adulterous wife, this unfaithful wife, is picturing or playing or dramatizing the king, the representative, the head of Israel. Interestingly enough, the northern kingdoms, God never chose any of their kings. They chose all of their kings. So we're talking about a people that had raised up um, kings for themselves, not kind of with any reference to God. And those kings now are leading them astray to these different places, these different uh, religious beliefs, different political alliances. And so the king is this interesting representative head for a wayward people. And so Gomer pictures this king, and God says, I'm not giving you words per se, Hosea. I'm putting you into this relationship. So go get this woman who has kids uh, that are born of unfaithfulness and bring her into your life, marry her, um, proclaim a covenant with her, and then as you have children, the offspring are going to represent my judgment. Um, and it's this really interesting thing, what's going on here. Um, most of the Bible tells us what God thinks about things. When you think of God the Father, when you think of the Old Testament God, don't you hear things or maybe even yourself say things like, the God of the Old Testament's an angry God. Like he's a God of judgment. He's a God of wrath. Why? Well, I don't know. People did some things wrong and he wanted to punish them. Like, or he sent them into exile. Why did God send them into exile? Because he was mad at them. You know? Like you get this kind of cold, distant picture of God that all we really know of him is he's unhappy with the, the circumstances here. He's unhappy with the people here. And, and we know what, what he's saying and what he thinks. And we kind of get this sense of duty or obligation. Well, we better pay attention to this. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be judged to, or otherwise, we're going to fall into the same kind of punishment that the Israelites fell into. But that's kind of the picture we get of this Old Testament God, is this interesting one where it's a bit distant, and we, we sense his emotions from afar, but we never, ever really empathize with the emotions of God. Like, we never walk a mile in God's shoes, so to speak. We never put ourselves in his place. And I don't know that we're supposed to always, but in this book, God invites all of Israel, and by way of that, kind of by proxy, everyone who's going to hear this message from then forward, us as God's people, he invites us into a story where we now sit in the seat of God, looking at things through his eyes, and we begin to understand the emotions of God the Father. And what are those emotions? God has gone and found a people that he brought to himself and made a covenant with them. I will give you the best of everything. I will, I will give you the best of myself. I will bless you. I will take care of you. This thing alone 
do I require that you remain faithful, that you don't bow down to other gods, that you don't use my, my name in vain, that you don't turn away, but this one thing I require, that you follow my statutes, that you, you keep me as your God. And so that's kind of the Old Testament picture. And then we get to this interesting thing where people begin to go their own way. They do their own thing. They're getting rich. They're, uh, they're extorting other people. They're giving no thought to God. And, and the, the first movement is taking God for granted, making small of God. The second movement is to setting up other gods. In other words, idols or things that you really serve with your actions, even if you're paying lip service to God, right? And, and that, that's... That's forever the thing that I think we find ourselves into when we stray from God. And we talk about it like, oh, yeah, I need to get my, my relationship with God right. Or, yeah, I, I've been meaning to go back to church one of these days. I, I need more religion in my life. Or, you know, we have kids now, and, and so we haven't been going to church as a married couple, but now you know, we're thinking it would be good for the kids to grow up in that environment. Like, we... We say a lot of things about um, walking kind of back into this relationship with God, but most of the things we say are very casual, as if, as if it doesn't really matter to God, per se, where we're wandering to and fro or, or back and, and forth. And, and I think that that's wrong on our part. I think this book kind of begins to give us a message that that's not how God sees it at all that God sees that wandering very much like a spouse would see the wandering of the person that they're married to. That if the person that they're married to finds themselves in bed with another lover, if they do that on a continual basis and don't remain faithful and won't come out of that life but continue to wander with the deepest, most intimate of things, marriage we think it's a wedding ceremony, right? I mean, that's the way culture defines it or a piece of paper. For much of human history, it was, it was the, the wedding bed where the two became one, literally one flesh joined, that really spoke marriage. That, that it was the act of sex that brought two people together and marked them off now as a couple, as a married couple. And it's the act of sex that's the one thing Jesus points to and says, this is, this is a cause for walking away from the covenant because that act of sex with another breaks, in some sense, the covenant. And so if you choose, doesn't mean you have to, but if you so chose, that would be the only reason that you should, you should walk away and divorce. You can't just wake up one day and not feel like it. Or like so many uh, times today, it's, I have to go find what makes me happy. Um, that, that Jesus is saying, this is a sacred thing and you can't just walk away unless there's cause. It also says uh, in Paul's letters, if you join yourself with a prostitute, you're one with the Holy Spirit. How can you be one with the Holy Spirit and join yourself to a prostitute? Because you're becoming one at that moment with someone else. And that, that can't be, metaphysically, can't be. And so this picture of unfaithfulness is really a picture of breaking the covenant, breaking the marriage, breaking the unity between two people that have found themselves um, betrothed to each other, married to each other, committed to each other, uh, under vows before God. 
And this is what happens with Gomer, and it's not just a one-time thing. We, we, we then go into the next two chapters, and we see her continuing to go, whether it's because of the fertility rites, and she really is falling into the old lifestyle as a prostitute to the, to the, uh, the, the pagan gods, or whether it's, again, just wandering. We see her continue to do this, and Hosea is not allowed to put an end to this marriage. So put yourself in that position as a person called by God. Most people I know ask the question, what is God's will for my life? It's probably the number one asked question that people ask. Like, what, I really wish I knew what God's will for my life was. I don't think anyone is expecting the answer to purposely go marry someone who's going to be unfaithful then stick with them because somehow God wants to to picture a story in that. Um, this is God's will for Hosea. This is, this is what God called Hosea to. So Hosea is there with his children. His wife is continuing to stray. And the emotions, the awkwardness, the wanting to run, but not the wanting to be angry, but not getting any like satisfaction. It's, it's crazy when you see someone cheating and their spouse just wants to get angry so that the other person would at least acknowledge the pain that's been caused and say sorry. I mean, that's what the one who's been wounded wants is that somehow the other person would admit this was a breach and it was wrong and I've wounded you. But oftentimes the one who is straying won't even give that satisfaction. They want to avoid the conversation. They want to hide from the conversation. They want to just run even further so that they don't have to have the conversation. And so the one who's been wounded sits there alone very alone, very taken for granted, very hurt. And this is Hosea as, as God's will for him as it works itself out. And God is wanting this to invite all of the world into a deep understanding of the pain that he feels or the loss that he feels as his people continue to stray or to wander or go chase after false gods or idols of their own hands that they fashion themselves and God says, with the whole world as witness, can you not see, can you not feel what that feels like for me? Have you ever thought of your own relationship with God as one that you're in a covenant relationship with and that how you handle the faithfulness of that covenant speaks to, in some sense, the, 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 the joy or the pain that God feels in that relationship. So, interesting, after this continues on for a long time, we get to chapter 3, and then God says to Hosea, Now go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another, and is an adulteress. By the way, here, here's a, a litany of words that are used in Hosea. The word adulterers once, the word, uh, the word adulter us twice, the word adultery five times, the word unfaithful shows up seven times. Let me just read you some of these. Uh, 
the one I already read, uh, read Hosea 1, 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea 2, 2, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Hosea 2, 5, their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my, uh, my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my, my olive oil and my drink. Hosea 4.12, my people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Hosea 5.7, they are unfaithful to the Lord. They give birth to Ill- illegitimate children. When they celebrate their new moon feasts, he will devour their fields. Hosea 6, 7, as at Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there, says God. Hosea 9, 1, do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every, at every threshing floor. So again, threshing floor, fertility, crops, and, and this whole idea of, of the rituals that would come maybe with that. Unfaithful used seven times. The word prostitute used three times in Hosea. The phrase broken covenant used more times in Hosea than any other book of the Bible save Jeremiah. And one of the uses in Jeremiah isn't even kind of the same context. This idea of broken covenant. Defiled once, stray once, and all of the, the words that would, you, would, you would use of your, your wife or your husband, your spouse, who's going off after other lovers. Like, this book is filled with these words. This is the message that's going on. So God says, even though she's loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Raisin cakes were viewed as an aphrodisiac back in those times. It's, so here we are with, they love the sacred raisin cakes. It's the, the fertility thing again. Fascinatingly enough, if you remember the story when David danced in his loincloth, danced mightily uh, before the Lord as the, the Ark of the Covenant is coming into Jerusalem. Uh, there's a Richard Gere movie when, when Richard Gere plays King David. Whatever you think about Richard Gere elsewise, watch that scene in that movie. Like, uh, it's, it's one of the most fascinating scenes. And Richard Gere is dancing, and, and he's kind of picturing David. And all the way up this long, dusty road as, as uh, the Ark of the Covenant is coming. And then he sent everybody home with raisin cakes. It was a celebration, right? Um, you guys aren't tracking with me. So verse 2, chapter 3, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. He buys back his wife. Buys her back from in the midst of infidelity. And then I, tell, uh, then I told her, you are to live with me the many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without the ephod or the idol. And afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So what's going on now is 
Hosea ends up in this marriage. His wife's heart is never true to him. Her body is never true to him. Her actions are never true to him. And after a period of time, he walks himself to the threshing floor or to the shrine or to the home, wherever his wife is with another, buys her back to himself and renews the covenant. It says, I will be your husband. And I will reside with you. And I will take care of you. And God is, again, mirroring or picturing his story, his covenant faithfulness with the Israelites. That even though you're going to walk away, even though you're going to find the wasteland out there away from me, I will come back and redeem you because you're mine. And even though you've been unfaithful, even though you've, you've cheated, even though you've, you've been wayward, I will redeem that and bring you back and renew my covenant with you. There's something fascinating going on here. Jesus came to do what? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Those who were straying, those who were wandering, those who were not with the flock or with the shepherd. And Jesus comes to chase them down, to go find them, and to then bring them back to himself. And that he's going to eventually die on the cross to cover over the wickedness or the shame or, or the waywardness, the unfaithfulness, so that his faith as the Son of God is going to be kind of what we are able to come into that we're made new, that we're washed white, that we're cleansed, this idea of kind of rebirth, that, that we're not who we once were. We're new people with a new name, and we have that because Jesus has chased us down and then come back and renewed the covenant with God's people. And so now, now we walk into this relationship with God where it says in Hebrews, we can come boldly before the throne of God. And Jesus says, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And it has many rooms, which isn't about a place. It's about a relationship. This is a patriarchal society. Living with the father wasn't about a room that was 12 by 12. It was about being with him on his land as a part of his house. And so Jesus is basically saying, I'm reconciling you back because I've gone after and renewed this covenant. Um, James Montgomery Boyce says that's obviously the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus. And so he says, by analogy, what God is doing here in Hosea is maybe the second greatest story ever told. Because it's a foreshadowing or a picturing, a mirroring of what's going to come with Jesus as Jesus comes to renew the covenant with God's people. That even though we are prone to wander that God's love will not fail for us, that even though we're the prodigal, that God will, will someday welcome us back, wants to welcome us back, because his love, his heart bleeds for us. No matter what we've done to him, no matter how difficult or painful that is for God, God wants us. So there's something interesting when we come to communion. It's the night before Jesus dies when he says, listen, this bread that, that used to symbolize kind of the Passover, all the way back when the Israelites came out of Egypt, this bread now is going to symbolize my body that's broken for you, and this blood is, is my blood. It's, it's the new covenant that my blood poured out is this new promise this new invitation, this new covenant with you that it's no longer going to be whether or not you're faithful always. It's going to be based and rooted in God's choosing of you. 
and in my faithfulness on the cross that the real power behind this covenant is, is that I'm the one that's securing it, not you. And you get to come into this relationship with God based on your relationship with me. If you remain as a branch in the vine, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. So I'm paving the way for this, this new covenant that's not based on your works, but it's that you're going to be kind of saved or reconciled to God by faith, through grace, and this, this comes as you're connected to me. And so now when you eat this bread, you're going to think of me. When you drink this cup, you're remembering me because this is where the relationship is anchored. Because God has come after you. He has found you. He has brought you back. You are now sons and daughters of the Most High. And he calls you loved. Just like in Hosea, he promised he would. And so when we come to this, on the other side of this table is a God who has been cheated on. Not just by the northern kingdom, but eventually the southern kingdom. And I would argue by, by all of us in some way, shape, or form, have with the knowledge of God still chosen to go elsewhere at times or in certain ways. And so on the other side of this table stands a God who's been cheated against, a God who gave his covenants to us, wanted to bless us, and who has been cheated on. Yet in his great mercy and love for us has seen fit to open up a way for us to, to remain in covenant relationship with him despite our unfaithfulness because of the faithfulness of his son that this is what he provided for us, the good news, the gospel, so that we could be saved or reconciled back to God. So when we come and we, we take and tear off bread and dip it in the wine, we're, we're looking at this and going, this is a really big deal. I think that's what Paul meant when he said, when you drink of the cup, when you eat the bread, don't do it in another unworthy way. Like, do it in a worthy way, meaning that you're recognizing the sacredness of what's going on. That it's not about how great you are. I don't care what you do, what books you read, how many small groups you go to, how perfect your kids are. I don't care. The beauty of what's going on here is not how great you are, but how great Christ was or how great a sacrifice his sacrifice truly was. And behind that is the greatness of God's love for us and the greatness of God's faithfulness that even though we, we are prone to wander, even though that we tend to walk away, that God will chase us down and wants to renew that covenant with us. So when we come to do this, to do it in a worthy way is to say, God, um, grace is an awkward thing. It's awkward for me to put myself in the position of one who wanders and to know what that feels like to you and to then still see that you're calling me back, inviting me back, desiring me back into a right relationship with you. It's awkward to accept that. It would, it would be a lot better if you would just give me 10 things to go do so I could earn it back. If I could go pay penance. If I could, if I could take it on myself and just whip myself like, you know, bad Ken, bad Ken, like a lot of times in Christian history has been the way, the ascetics, you know, that, that somehow by mutilating my flesh, I'm, I'm taking on enough pain to make it worth that I can do this. And, and that's not it. It's not about me somehow contorting myself to become good enough. It's that in Christ, I'm already accepted as I am, as the one that is oftentimes unfaithful. That's awkward 
Grace is awkward, yet it's the only thing that's going to work. It's the only thing we really desire. And when we choose to accept that, we get to start fresh right there with the Father who loves us. Is there anything more beautiful than when we've messed things up than to, to get to start over right then and there? I do this with my kids a lot. Like, we'll have a bad week or a bad day, and I, I'll look at my child and I'm like, I know that it is possible for us to start over right now in this instant. If they would but understand that we could start over right now, I, I would choose that. I would want that. I would forget everything else prior. And I would take this moment and say, yes, right now we're reconciled. And we can start over right now. And and most times that doesn't work, right? But we know as parents or or we know when we we see different instances with friends or or with with others that that we kind of realize I I would take right now as, as a starting point. That'd be okay with me. Nobody has to be punished. Nobody has to anything. Let's just start over. And that's what God is, is feeling for us at all times. That no, we don't have to go there. We can to try and fix some broken things, but I'll take you right now. Prodigal son walking down the road. I will run to you and throw my cloak around you and kill the fattened calf right now if we could start over. How many of you would choose that in an instant with an enemy, a friend, a son, a daughter, a spouse? We understand that emotion, don't we? Right now, we'd start over. The reason we're supposed to do this on a regular basis in remembrance of Christ is because it's the thing that forces us time and again to remember the story the story that God pursues us, that God loves us, that he's, he's wanting to renew covenant with us and that there's always a right now. There's always a fresh start. There's always this place where we meet at this table and we begin anew with the cloak around us, with the fattened calf or the sacrificial lamb or the firstborn son of God slain for that relationship. So let me read to us, and then we'll begin communion. Maybe the band can come out. They're going to sing for us as we go through this uh, or play for us so that, that we can worship as we come to the table. But here's, as it's found in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Now do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let me pray for us. And you can come down the aisles. We have gluten-free bread on the edge of, of every station. So on the back and on these two edges, on the edge we have that. Um, but you can come, uh, share with someone next to you, take it back, pray, however you choose to. But this is a start over moment in your heart, in your mind, in conversation with God 
accepting that awkward thing called grace that we truly can in this moment be reconciled with our Father. Dear Lord, we pray for this time, this moment. Uh, us as your covenant people, may we understand that the covenant, if not renewed in actuality, is renewed in our minds as we're able to come down and remember what happened with your Son. For those that have strayed, please, Father, tug on heartstrings that they can come and find grace, that your love is a pursuing love, an unfailing love. May we walk out of here in covenant relationship, fully in covenant relationship with you, knowing your love for us. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.